Welcome to today's reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Monday, January 22nd. I'm your reader, Teresa Whitaker. Here's our first story. When teen needed kidney, UI nurse came to his aid. Her organ donation was swapped for a kidney that matched the Dubuque team by Aaron Jordan out of Iowa City. Whoever said that laughter is the best medicine wasn't giving advice to a transplant patient with abdominal stitches. But Kathy Anderson laughs, clutching a kidney-shaped pillow to her incision site as she tells the story about toting a jar of urine in her backpack as she went through tests to see if she could donate a kidney. Anderson, 54, of Iowa City, passed the tests and on January 4th donated her right kidney for Christopher Turnus, 19, of Dubuque. But Turnus actually got someone else's kidney, which is exactly how the National Kidney Registry works. The program allows people to donate a kidney that isn't a match to help a loved one, friend, or stranger receive another kidney that is a match. I wanted him to have the best possible kidney, said Anderson, a mother of three and a neonatal intensive care unit nurse at the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics in Iowa City. The registry has facilitated more than 8,300 kidney transplants across the United States. UIHC, which joined the network in 2019, has had 36 kidney recipients through this program. The registry runs separately from the United Network for Organ Sharing Deceased Donor Program, which started in the 1980s. Recently, that network has faced criticism for changes some say give preferential treatment to patients in big cities at the expense of patients in more rural areas like Iowa. For Turnus, the kidney he received January 4th is his second kidney transplant. A birth defect caused damage to his kidney and bladder, and at age 6, he wanted nothing more than a new kidney so he didn't have to undergo daily dialysis. On my sixth birthday, when I blew out my candles, I wished for a new kidney, he said. A week later, his family was notified there was a kidney available through the deceased donor program. That kidney lasted 13 years, allowing Turnus to have a fairly normal childhood that included being a kid captain at a UI football game in 2018. But by the time he was a junior at Dubuque-Hempstead, the transplanted kidney was wearing out. The main thing about my kidney declining was fatigue, said Turnus, who slept 16 to 18 hours a day during that time. It really hindered me to do the things I wanted to do, such as go to college. Most people with kidney disease will need several transplants over the course of their lives, with transplanted kidneys often lasting between 13 to 20 years, explained Lindsay Harshman, a UIHC pediatric nephrologist who has worked with Turnus for six years. She was a medical student when he had his first transplant. Transplants themselves are not a cure, she said. It's simply starting the life cycle of chronic kidney disease again. Transplant coordinators put Turnus on the deceased donor network waiting list in 2021. But Turnus's mother, Christina Turnus, also put out a plea on Facebook for a living donor. Anderson, who had met the family before and has a mutual friend in Dubuque, saw that November 2022 message. It was just heartbreaking for another medical mom to hear there's a kid that needs something, Anderson said, apologizing as her voice catches and she wipes her eye as she talks. Anderson and her husband Mike have a son, Mateo, who was born prematurely with birth defects. He is now a thriving teenager, but like the Turnuses, the Anderson family also has spent many days and nights at UIHC. Anderson decided to start the process to see if she could donate a kidney that could be swapped for a kidney for Turnus. 
We do a very thorough evalu- evaluation, said Brittany Hohoff, a kidney transplant nurse coordinator at UIHC. I always tell the donors our main job is your safety. The transplant team looks at the prospective donor's kidney function to make sure the donor can continue to thrive with only one kidney, which isn't all that unusual. One in 1,000 people are born with only one kidney, Harshman said. Transplant surgeons typically remove the left kidney because it's on the opposite side from the liver, which makes the surgery less complicated. But in Anderson's case, they learned her left kidney was slightly larger, and they wanted to leave her with that organ, Anderson said. I just trusted the doctor, she said. I also reached out to a colleague who donated a kidney a few years back. They said, you'll be fine. Donors through the National Kidney Registry go to the top of the deceased donor list if they ever need a kidney transplant, as do designated family members, Hohoff said. That means Anderson's son, Mateo, will have better odds if he ever needs a transplant, Anderson said. The registry was able to find a unique donor to provide a kidney for Turnus, who also battles eosinophilic esophagitis, a complicated digestive system disorder that causes his body to attack some foods like a poison. A new medicine is keeping that disorder under control, but Turnus still has antibodies against transplants from about half the population, Harshman said. If we would have gone through the deceased donor pool, his options become limited, she said. Through the National Kidney Registry, we can look at different swaps. The national data suggests there is a distinct living donor advantage. When surgery day arrived, Anderson was first in the operating room. Turnus and his father, Ron, saw who they believe was the courier who took Anderson's kidney to Chicago O'Hare International Airport, where it was flown to the southwest to be transplanted into another recipient. A few hours later, that same driver brought another kidney back from O'Hare for Turnus. Less than a week after their surgeries, Turnus and Anderson met at the Ronald McDonald House, where Turnus's family stayed while he was in the hospital. Now that I've got this new kidney, I'm on the road to recovery, and hopefully, let's let this kidney last as long as it can, Turnus said. My plans are to do a few years at a local community college and eventually transfer to the University of Iowa to get an education in child life specialties. Being in a children's hospital all my life, I could bring a different perspective to the profession. The UIHC transplant team will monitor Anderson for two years, but Hohoff said she's available as a resource long after that. Anderson knows she needs to make sure she's drinking plenty of water, which she does anyway, and be wary of how some drugs, including ibuprofen, can affect her remaining kidney. She wears a t-shirt that says, share your spare and recycle your parts, as a way to advocate for being a living donor. We want to take the best care of them possible because they are providing the ultimate gift to this patient, Harshman said. We have an in memoriam, George T. Henry, a legacy of images. Photographer documented everything at Coe College, big and small, for 67 years. This is by Elijah Decius, out of Cedar Rapids. If a picture is worth a thousand words, photographer George T. Henry leaves a legacy of millions in service to Coe College and Cedar Rapids. The well-known photographer, whose work documented college life for half of the 20th century, died at his home in Cottage Grove Place on Sunday, January 14th, his 101st birthday. It was all about the story, and he wrote a good one, said his younger son, Jeff Henry, of Cedar Rapids. Known on campus as Mr. Coe College, Henry's photographs marked the lives of thousands who passed through Coe 
from touchdowns and commencements to luminaries and heads of state who took the stage at Sinclair Auditorium. Some of his most iconic photographs on campus were of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., Louis Armstrong, and painter Marvin Cohn. His most prominent talent was finding the hidden gems of everyday life. You don't take pictures of commonplace things, but I do, he recounted telling a fellow photographer in a 2022 Gazette interview. With a Kodak medalist camera, the World War II veteran started taking photos as a hobby upon his return from Europe in 1946, where he served as an Army Air Corps bomber pilot over Italy and Austria. The hobbies, starting with photos of dances on the co-campus, quickly turned into a profession. Henry pioneered video filming of football games in 1951. Where there was no place for camera operators to stand on the field, he made one, whether it was by climbing atop the press box, using the door and doorknobs as steps, or scaling a 30-foot utility ladder at basketball games. Henry received numerous awards and an honorary, honorary doctoral degree in fine arts from Coe. In 1999, he and his wife Kay capped their support of Coe by funding the Coe College Archives, named after him, and holding 130,000 of his black and white negatives and 10,000 color pictures. Many a Cohawk recognized that no event was truly a Coe College gathering until George appeared to capture the moment with his lens, Co-President David Hayes said. His dedication was such that he never failed to record both routine and extraordinary events that shaped and marked this college for more than half a century. He will be dearly missed by all those who had the opportunity to know him and see the world through his work. Named the world's longest-serving member of the Optimist Club in 2022, Henry found plenty of ways to be of service to his community off-campus, too. Born only four years after the International Service Organization started, he was a club member for 73 years. He was a friend to everyone, said Dr. Dean Frey, a former veterinarian who had known Henry through the Optimist Club since 1963. Friends and fellow club members largely credit his long life to a positive attitude that made the best of any situation. It was reflected in his words and actions even hours before he died. I'm starting on my second hundred years, were some of his last words, according to fellow optimist Joan Force. Force, who had known Henry since 2014, said his engagement as a reliable listener made him a comforting and unconditionally dependable presence, no matter the setting. It felt like he'd be there forever, she said. With his summers free, Henry worked as a river guide for 45 years in Colorado and Utah, where he guided and photographed some of America's most prominent celebrities of the 1960s, including Andy Williams, several members of the Kennedy family, and Jim Whitaker, the first American to summit Mount Everest. Last year, a set of film negatives from his time on the rivers were accepted by the John F. Kennedy Presidential Library in Boston, where they will remain in perpetuity. Among the most treasured photos framed on Henry's bedroom wall were two he took of Robert F. Kennedy in the 1960s on a whitewater rafting trip, one of Kennedy holding his daughter Carrie and one of Kennedy with his arm around Henry. Henry served as a river guide on whitewater rafting expeditions until he was fired in 2000 at age 77 because his employer could no longer ensure a river guide of his age. Even toward the end of his life, the adventurer was never quite content to be still. Surrounded by almost 20 scrapbooks documenting his life, he was working on an autobiography, his second one. 
Henry will be remembered in part by his persistence and determination. He had one of his hips replaced, and the next week he was at Co. on a ladder taking commencement photos. I remember him gently complaining he couldn't carry his own bag, his son Jeff Henry recalled. After he had the other hip replaced a month later, he went whitewater rafting in the Grand Canyon. But most of all, Jeff Henry said, his father should be remembered for his love of people, the trait that enabled him to capture the color of life using black and white film, and a characteristic that endeared him to a legion of friends over the past century. Visitation for George T. Henry will be at 4 to 7 p.m. Friday, February 2nd, at Cedar Memorial Park Funeral Home, 4200 First Avenue Northeast. The funeral will be at 10.30 a.m. Saturday, February 3rd, at First Congregational Church, 361 17th Street Southeast in Cedar Rapids. Okay, I'm going to turn to the government notes. Cedar Rapids Public Library launching $10 million fund drive. Also, Iowa City planning Black History Ball. The Cedar Rapids Public Library Foundation is launching the Inspiring Big Dreams capital campaign that will fund the new Westside Library. The campaign aims to raise $10 million to build the new library at the corner of Edgewood Boulevard and 20th Avenue Southwest. It will be within walking distance of the current Ladd Library at 3750 Williams Boulevard Southwest, a space the library has leased since 2013. The city of Cedar Rapids will add a new city park outside the new library, featuring amenities such as outdoor reading rooms, multi-use courts, and community gardens. The new library will serve as a bustling community hub, offering a larger selection of materials, more spaces to gather and connect, dedicated children's program space, and more, according to a news release. It's estimated the new library will cost less than $25 million. The Cedar Rapids City Council allocated $6 million in American Rescue Plan Act funds toward its construction, and the Lynn County Board of Supervisors awarded $4 million in ARPA funds to the project. An estate gift of $2 million to the Library Foundation in 2020 went toward buying land for the new library. Additional private and corporate gifts and grants have come in to fuel the Inspiring Big Dreams fundraising campaign, which will be unveiled Thursday. This project wouldn't be possible without the generous support we've already received. Now we need our community to join us to make our big dream for the West Side a reality, Foundation Executive Director Charity Tyler said in a statement. Library and park designs are underway. The library plans to break ground this fall and open in late 2026. It will be a nearly 40,000-square-foot facility, much larger than the current 28,405-square-foot Ladd Library. Plans call for it to have more space for children's learning with zones for creative play, technology use, and motor skill development, 10 study rooms, a large conference room and a conference center available for public use, outdoor reading courtyards and a library lawn for gathering and programs, additional space for the Opportunity Center, and library partners to provide services. Increased accessibility for ease of use, as well as connections to walking trails and sidewalks for pedestrian traffic. More than 100,000 people visit the Ladd Library each year. The library estimates it will see 300,000 visitors annually at the larger new facility. We've seen again and again how the library enriches the community, from putting books in the hands of children to helping job seekers at the Opportunity Center. The library is proud to serve our patrons, Library Director Dara Schmidt said in a statement. We now have the chance to give even more 
through a permanent location and enhanced services. We're asking the community to invest in that vision with us. More information about the project and how to support the inspiring Big Dreams campaign is available at crlibrary.org slash bigdreams. Iowa City planning Black History Ball. Iowa City's first Black History Ball is planned for February 3rd at the Iowa City Senior Center's Assembly Room. The center's original mature groovers, formerly known as Elders of Color, is teaming with the Sankofa Outreach Connection nonprofit to present the ball, scheduled for 7 to 10 p.m. The evening will include live jazz by the Curtis Taylor Quartet, a keynote address by University of Iowa Assistant Professor Ashley Howard, and food representing African cuisine and traditional African-American dishes. The event is intended to celebrate the history and culture of Iowa's African-American community while promoting unity and fostering connections. Tickets are $50 each and can be purchased at http colon slash slash tinyurl.com slash m-r-y-a-w-v-t-p. Proceeds will benefit the original Mature Groovers and Sankofa Outreach. The Senior Center also is partnering with the University of Iowa Stanley Museum of Art to present an art exhibit, which opens February 3rd, that was curated for the event. Record Year for Alliance Memberships The Cedar Rapids Metro Economic Alliance set a record for new members in 2023, adding 163 businesses, a nearly 15% increase. At the organization's annual meeting last week in downtown Cedar Rapids, Executive Director Doug Newman said the increase was more than in any other year in the Alliance's 13-year history. If records were available dating back to the Chamber of Commerce's founding in 1918, before it and other organizations merged to form the Alliance, Newman said, he suspects 2023 may well have been one of the strongest years ever. Many of these new members are coming from referrals and from the good word you are spreading about the value of the Economic Alliance, Newman told those at the annual meeting. There seems to be a collaborative recognition of the power and importance of a unified business community and the strength and influence the private sector can have when we work together and have people waking up every day thinking about how to grow the economy. The growth in membership comes after the Cedar Rapids City Council last summer reduced the city's alliance membership from $75,000 a year to $25,000 a year. Mary Tiffany O'Donnell has said she wanted to better target city funds toward other economic development initiatives, such as the Downtown Vision Plan. The Alliance and City are among the partners working to implement that plan, a five-year guide to reactivate Cedar Rapids' urban core after the COVID-19 pandemic. Earlville Woman Fined for Tire Appliance Burning. This is an article by Jared Strong. State regulators recently fined a Northeast Iowa woman $2,500 for numerous tire fires at her acreage that persisted for months despite warnings they are illegal, according to a recent Iowa Department of Natural Resources order. Someone made anonymous complaints to the DNR of more than a dozen fires at the rural Earlville residence of Jody Rolfus between September 2022 and January 2023. The department initially investigated the fires in September 2022 after a local fire department had extinguished one and the complaint said it had been reignited. 
DNR officers noted a tire and wheel on fire during their visit, along with scrap metal that included tire wire and wheels, and a heavy layer of ash and debris on the ground, the orders said. No one answered a knock at the door of the residence during that visit, but Rolfus said in a telephone call with the DNR later that day, allegedly said she would not allow anyone from the department to go onto her property without a search warrant. A DNR officer told her that it is illegal to burn tires, which releases toxins that can pollute the air and groundwater. Despite the admonition, someone placed a refrigerator in the burn area after the DNR's visit. Her first stance was that it didn't happen, said Andrea Ertham, one of the department's environmental specialists who investigated the fires, and then it became that her son had lit them and she was unaware. Rolfus told the Iowa Capital Dispatch that a whirlwind had ignited the tire fire, which consumed 10 new fires and 20 bales of hay. We lost everything, she said through tears, adding that it was nonsensical to allege the fire had been intentionally ignited. There were several more complaints about burning at the property, with photographic evidence of the allegations, over the ensuing months, the order said. Rolfus said her property often suffers from spontaneous fires with no apparent causes. She said she is disabled by the condition that requires doctors to drain fluids from her skull and that she feels attacked by neighbors whom she assumes are the sources of the complaints against her. I just want people to leave me alone, she said. In January 2023, a DNR officer obtained a search warrant to go onto the property to inspect it. Ms. Rolfus crumpled the warrant and asked everyone to leave, the order said, but a DNA, DNR supervisor officer and deputy sheriff found evidence of tire burning, three burned appliances, and other burned residential waste at the site. Rolfus said that she had burned wet furniture, bicycle tires, and other items that were in her basement when it received water damage, the order said. The inspection also noted numerous waste tires across the property and an outbuilding filled with them. The recent DNR order levied the $2,500 fine and forbade Rolfus from violating the state's open burning regulations. Ertham said there have been no further complaints about Rolfus since January 2023. Eventually, she figured it out, Ertham said. Rolfus was also cited by the Delaware County Sheriff's Office in 2022 for failing to dispose of dead animals on the property, court records show. Criminal complaints filed that April alleged there were more than a dozen decaying animals, including cows, at the acreage that were not disposed of within 24 hours of death as required by state law. Rolfus alleged allegedly told a deputy sheriff that she was unable to remove the carcasses because of living and weather conditions, court records show. Rolfus pleaded guilty to three charges and was fined about $300. Then there's also several pictures here from uh, Ready for Repair, um, an event that took place at the East Side Recycling Center in Iowa City on Saturday. It's showing volunteers, uh, Gina Swift of Iowa City, is observing as Mike Roberts of Iowa City works on fixing one of his old flannel shirts. Community members brought broken and worn items to learn how to fix or mend them at the East Side Recycling Center. Shows Jan Weaver of Iowa City working on repairing her music box while talking Saturday with Bob Beal of Iowa City during the Iowa City repair event. And Garrett Hinson of Iowa City works on fixing a CD player during the event. Shows Janice Wall of Iowa City using her sewing machine to stitch during an Iowa City repair event Saturday. And Mike Roberts of Iowa City working on sewing a flannel shirt during, well, I already told you about that one. 
So that was the event that happened on Saturday. I'm now going to turn to the Insight Opinion section and read the community letters. 2024 is the year to get involved. Sometimes someone has already written the words that express my outlook and upon which cannot be improved. No people ever recognize their dictator in advance. He never stands for election on the platform of dictatorship. He always represents himself as the instrument for expressing the incorporated national will. When Americans think of dictators, they always think of some foreign model. If anyone turned up here in a fur hat, boots, and a grim look, he would be recognized and shunned. But when our dictator turns up, you can depend on it that he will be one of the boys, and he will stand for everything traditionally American. That was written by Dorothy Thompson in 1937. This year, 2024, is not a year to sit on the sidelines. Think, get involved, vote. That letter was from Mary Hoffman of Decorah. Our other letter is Lynn GOP should have been better prepared for turnout. An editorial in the Gazette last Sunday warned that some Lynn County Republicans may not be allowed to fully participate in the January 15 caucuses because turnout might exceed the capacity of the caucus site. Given the expected turnout, this was a very real concern. However, this is not a new problem. In 2016, Republican caucus voters were packed body to body with hundreds waiting to get into the convention center. That was from a, apparently an article on page 6C of the Sunday, January 14th paper. I'm extremely upset that Chairman Edward Bernie Hayes and others of the Lynn County GOP didn't have the historical knowledge or the planning ability to overcome the problems of 2016 and thus assure every voter would have the opportunity to fully participate in the Lynn County caucuses. It's bad enough that the caucuses are restricted to one night with the restricted hours, which in and of itself denies many the opportunity to participate. But to potentially disallow participation due to lack of planning to accommodate an anticipated turnout, similar to 2016, is totally unacceptable. Iowa is one of only three states that clings to the antiquated caucus process. It's time Iowa left this process and allowed voting opportunities to all Iowans, not just those who are not busy, not sick, not out of town, who still drive, who are physically able to travel, and those who are not cautious of the weather while the weather while or the potential exposure to COVID and the flu. That letter was from Steve Springer of Cedar Rapids. And then we have a guest column Norman Sh- from Norman Sherman. Kim's Edict, Let Them Eat Cake. I've risen above party loyalty. I worry about the Iowa Republican Party, too. A D.C. friend said to me of Governor Kim Reynolds, she can't be as empty as she sounds. I leapt to her defense. Yes, she can. Reynolds' explanation of why she had joined the 14 other Republican governors in rejecting a federal program to feed kids during the summer when their school lunch was not available was beyond ridiculous. The summer program is not some liberal, woke craziness. It was approved as part of a bipartisan budget agreement in 2022. Reynolds said obesity was the problem, implying that hunger isn't. If 35% of kids in Iowa are obese, 65% are not. Begrudgingly, I say thank God she is a governor and not your nutritionist. I'm glad, by the way, she is not trying to cure athlete's foot or ingrown toenails. Surgery would probably be her solution. Iowa does have a high obesity rate, although it is much higher among adults than kids covered in this summer program. 
Obesity is a national problem with over 30% of adults hitting the scales as fat. Kim is not alone or the worst. Republican governors will not let the program function in their states. Nebraska Governor Jim Pillen declared, I don't believe in welfare. No Democrat has turned down money for the program, and some caring Republicans have signed on. Here is the headline and lead that drew my attention. Republican governors in 15 states are rejecting a new federally funded program to give food assistance to hungry children during the summer months. Denying benefits to millions of children across the country is not why they were elected. The program would feed 21 million kids starting soon after schools close. Money from the $2.5 billion relief fund would come here to to cover costs as it would across the country. Here's another report. The governors have given varying reasons for refusing to take part, from from the price tag to the fact that the final details of the plan have yet to be worked out. Republican leaders have been criticized for playing politics with children in need, but they argue it is necessary to get back to pandemic spending levels at a time when the United States is trillions of dollars in debt and lawmakers in Washington are struggling to come to a budget agreement. Tom Vilsack, once governor and now secretary of agriculture, said, noting that the program has support from other Republicans and Democrats, there isn't really a political reason for not doing this. This is unfortunate. I think governors may not have taken the time or made the effort to understand what this program is and what it is not. Here is information for Kim. It will provide families with incomes below the poverty level who already get school lunches for a reduced price or free with $120 per child to buy food at grocery stores, farmers markets, or other approved retailers. So far, 35 states, 5 U.S. territories, and 4 Native American tribes will be participating. Iowa should be among them. Please, Governor, listen to the cries of kids who are needlessly hungry because of you. That was from Norman Sherman of Coralville, and he has worked extensively in politics, including as vice president of Hubert Humphrey's press secretary, vice president Hubert Humphrey's press secretary. You are listening to the Cedar Rapids Gazette on IRIS, the Iowa radio reading information service for the blind. All material heard on IRIS is intended solely for the use of the blind and print disabled. I'm your reader, Teresa Whitaker. If you have any comments on this or any other IRIS program, give us a call at 515-243-6833. And now we'll turn to today's obituaries. August Gus Richard Dick Smith, 83 of Marion, passed away on Friday, January 19th at Dennis and Donna Oldorf Hospice House of Mercy in Hiawatha. Visitation will be held from 4 to 7 p.m. on Thursday, January 25th at Murdoch Funeral Home and Cremation Service in Marion. No need for a suit and tie when you stop to say goodbye. Casual dress will be just fine or just your bibs. I'll be in mine. Mass of Christian Burial will begin at 10.30 a.m. on Friday, January 26th at St. Joseph Catholic Church in Prairieburg, Iowa, with Father Sean Smith officiating. Burial will follow at St. Joseph Catholic Cemetery in Prairieburg. Dick was born on January 29, 1940, in Monticello, the son of August and Norma Whitting Smith. He served honorably in the United States Navy from 1957 until 1961. Upon returning, he worked in the maintenance department for Cryovac Incorporated until his retirement in 2001. On January 31, 1963, Dick was united in marriage to Margaret M. Lauren, in Prairieburg. 
His greatest joy was spending time with his family, especially his grandchildren. He looked forward to his annual vacations with his family, fishing, going for rides on his Harley, and was an avid euchre player. He was a member of St. Joseph Catholic Church in Prairieburg. Dick was greatly, will be greatly missed by all who knew and loved him. Dick is survived and lovingly remembered by his children, Todd, wife Christina Smith of Alburnett, Lisa, spouse Blaine Stegel of Marion, and Don, spouse Randy Danford of Marion, 12 grandchildren and 15 great-grandchildren. He was preceded in death by his parents, wife Margaret, sisters Annalie Holmes and Norma Holub. Susan Nost, 81, of Lisbon, passed away on Wednesday, January 17th. Visitation will be from 3 to 5 p.m. on Sunday, January 21st at Stuart Baxter Funeral and Memorial Services in Mount Vernon. Funeral service will be at 11 a.m. on Monday, January 22nd at the United Methodist Church, Mount Vernon. Burial will follow at Lisbon Cemetery. Susan was born September 29, 1942 in La Crosse, Wisconsin, daughter of Neil and Irene Schmidt McHugh. She married John Nost on October 2, 1982. She worked as a secretary at Rockwell Goss. She enjoyed playing euchre, getting her nails done, boating, going out to eat, and shopping. Susan is survived by her husband, John Nost, daughter, Kelly Erickson, stepdaughter, Mary, spouse, John Hale, grandchildren, Serena, spouse, Jose Delgado, Vanessa Vizcara, Adam, spouse, Jacqueline Hale, Molly Hale, and Alex Hale, great-grandchildren, Nolan Hale, Case Hale, Reagan Delgado, Grayson Delgado, and Raven Delgado, and a niece, Lori. She is preceded in death by her parents, daughter, Christine Brown, and brother, Neil McHugh. Jean Yeris, Y-E-R-I-E-S, 70, of Norway, Iowa, passed away Friday, January 19th. Per Jean's wishes, there will be no visitation or services at this time. A full obituary is viewable on the Iowa Cremation website. Bonnie Dolores Culp Bemis, or Mrs. B, Bon Bon, Mom, or Nana, as she was called by those who knew and loved her, passed away at the age of 89 on January 17th due to complications of a stroke in June of 2022. She was from Cedar Rapids. A visitation will be held from 4 to 6 p.m. at the Cedar Memorial Chapel Stateroom on Wednesday, January 24th. A funeral service will be held at the Cedar Memorial Chapel of Memories at 1 p.m. on Thursday, January 25th. A private family inurement will follow the service. Bonnie was born May 6, 1934, in Ames. Bonita and Harold Culp adopted her when she was four and moved her and her brother Richard to Eldridge. She attended a one-room schoolhouse through eighth grade and graduated from Davenport High School in 1952. Her two years at Iowa State Teachers College were filled with drama productions and cheerleading. There she was able to receive her teaching certificate and taught kindergarten in Coggan and West Branch. She met her husband, Dean, on a blind date. They eloped in October of 1958 and celebrated that anniversary as well as the June 14, 1958 wedding date every year. Dean fell hard and loved her until his death in 2010. Bonnie had an infectious energy that filled up the room. She loved a good party, socializing, and golf, not as much as Dean, but she could still beat him, and so he would practice more. Bonnie was a natural athlete, winning the Cedar Rapids Women's Golf Tournament in 1970. She was also a great tennis player and bowler. She was in all three leagues for the Cedar Rapids Country Club for years. 
Bonnie was never one to sit still and was a gifted decorator and entrepreneur. With her dear friend Shirley Hill, she opened one of the area's first high-end furniture consignment and estate sale businesses, Top Drawer. They also designed and created shirts, purses, stuffed animals, and Christmas decor which they sold at craft markets. Bonnie was preceded in death by her husband of 52 years, Dr. Dean Bemis, her parents, a brother, and her companion, Dorothy Topping. She is survived by her four children, Lisa Bemis, Shields, spouse Randy, David, Dan, and Scott, spouse Amy, seven grandchildren, Emily Shields, Hauser, spouse Michael, Alex, spouse Ashley, Cooper, spouse Abby, Madison, Alyssa, Jake, and Claire Bemis. She was also loved by her five great-grandchildren, Lucy, Michael, Eleanor, Zoe, and Julia Hauser. In lieu of flowers to honor Bonnie's memory, please consider a donation to the Community Health Free Clinic, His Hands Free Clinic, or the Cedar Valley Humane Society. Ronald Ron E. Lone of Oxford, rural Oxford, was 90 when he died Thursday, January 18th, at his home surrounded by his family on the farm that he loved. Memorial Mass will be held at 10.30 a.m. Saturday, January 27th, at St. Peter's Catholic Church in Cosgrove, with military honors following the funeral Mass. Visitation will be from 4 to 7 p.m. Friday at St. Peter's Hall in Cosgrove. In lieu of flowers, a memorial fund has been established in Ron's memory to support numerous causes near and dear to him and his family. To share a thought, memory, or condolence with his family, please visit Gay and Seha Funeral and Cremation Service website at www.gayandseha.com. Ron was born on March 29, 1933 to Charles and Martha Lone. Ron was born and raised on a farm in the Cosgrove area. He continued farming all of his life, something that he truly enjoyed. Ron was proud to receive the Honored Farm Family Award from the Iowa City Area Chamber of Commerce in 2015. Even up to the end, Ron could be seen on his gator supervising the field work. Ron never passed up an opportunity to play cards with family, friends, and neighbors. He enjoyed doing jigsaw puzzles, traveling, eating out, and was always willing to offer a helping hand. Ron proudly served in the artillery division of the Army during the Korean War. He rarely missed assisting in putting up the flags in, at Memorial Day and was so fortunate to have been on one of the honor flights to Washington, D.C. Upon his return home from military service, he married the love of his life, Rose Ann Kinney. They have shown their family and the real meaning of love and marriage as they have been married almost 69 years. Ron was extremely proud of his four wonderful children, his 10 awesome grandchildren, and his 17 adorable great-grandchildren. Ron will be missed dearly, but the memories that he made with family and friends will remain forever. Ron's values of hard work, love, and dedication to family will continue to inspire those who knew him. His family includes his wife, Roseanne, their children, Randy Lone, spouse Marcia, Rick Lone, Richard Lone, spouse Pam, and Rachel Quinlan, spouse Tom. Ten grandchildren, Tammy Apkis, spouse Keith, Tara Wiltrout, spouse Jake, Christy Rosnick, spouse Justin, Stephanie Marquart, spouse Tim, Jessica Arthur, spouse Jim, Nick Quinlan, spouse Hannah, Wes Quinlan, Ben Hines, spouse Nikki, Dylan Hines, spouse Taylor, and Chelsea Hines, and 17 great-grandchildren. Ron was preceded in death by his parents, sister Gwen Burnett, spouse Virgil, brother Daryl Lone, spouse Audrey, and grandson Ryan Quinlan. 
John B. Jack Walters, a lifelong resident of Cedar Rapids, passed away at the age of 103 years on Thursday, January 18th, at Grand Living at Indian Creek in Cedar Rapids. In agreement with his wishes, cremation has taken place. The family will greet friends and family from 4 to 6 p.m. on Friday, February 2nd, at First Presbyterian Church, located at 310 5th Street Southeast in Cedar Rapids. A memorial service followed by military honors will be held at 11 a.m. on Saturday, February 3rd, at the church, with Pastor Heather Haynes officiating. Inurnment will take place at 2 p.m. on Saturday at Cedar Memorial Park Cemetery in Cedar Rapids. Murdoch Funeral Home and Cremation Service of Marion is assisting the family with arrangements. Jack was born on January 8, 1921, in Rockford, Illinois, the son of Reuben R. and May Louise Bailey Walters. By age 11, he had lost both of his parents and learned the value of hard work. He worked for the Cedar Rapids Gazette and sold various items that earned him money. Jack graduated from Franklin High School in 1939 and from Coe College in 1946 after his service in the Army Air Corps. He married Anne Louise Engberg on February 14, 1943, just prior to entering his service of duty during World War II. Jack was a B-26 Martin Marauder pilot flying 83 combat missions in the European theater. He earned the ETO ribbon with two battle stars and an air medal with a silver oak leaf cluster. His post-war activity included memberships in the B-26 Historical Society and the 9th Air Force Association. After his military service and graduation from Coe, Jack was employed for more than 48 years as an agent and general agent in the Cedar Rapids Agency of National Life of Vermont, and he was a registered representative for Equity Service, Incorporated. He earned his Charter Life Underwriter degree in 1951. Jack served as president of the local Life Underwriters Association and the local chapter of the American Society of CLU. He was also a charter member of the Cedar Rapids Estate Planning Council. Jack was active in local civic activities, which included chairman of Lynn County Republicans, national chairman of Coe College's Alumni Association, charter member and past president of the Thursday Noon Optimist Club, chairman of the Hart Fund, and former member of the Cedar Rapids Planning Commission for 25 years. He also volunteered at St. Luke's Hospital until his hearing disability interfered with his work. For 40 years, Jack and Ann enjoyed owning a cottage and boat in McGregor on the Mississippi River, where he was past commodore of MUMYBC, the McGregor Area Boat Club. He was raised as a Christian scientist, but he became a member of the First Presbyterian Church in 1941 until his death, where Jack served as a trustee and elder. Travel was also a family activity. Jack and Anne were proud that they'd visited all 50 states, parts of Canada, Mexico, Brazil, and parts of Europe. They were loyal Co-Hawk and Hawkeye fans and enjoyed the Rose Bowl when the Iowa Hawkeyes played and won in 1959. Jack had survived and lovingly remembered by his four children, James, spouse Janet Walters of Lake Lure, North Carolina, Martha, spouse David Booth of Cedar Rapids, Thomas, spouse Susan Walters of LaVale, Wisconsin, and Mary, spouse Scott Malcolm of Wheaton, Illinois. Seven grandchildren, Drew, spouse Tanya Harper and their children, Connor and Lily, Greg Walters, Michael, spouse Kelly Walters and their daughters, Emma and Annie, Sarah, spouse Chris Graverson and their children, Colin and Cora, Eric, spouse Alexandra Malcolm and their children, Cody, Audrey, Carrie, Elena, and Piper. Kristen 
Malcolm, Karen, spells Andy Galica, and their children, Emma, Ava, and Sarah, and his niece, Anne, spells Tim Leland. He was preceded in death by his parents, beloved wife of 69 years, Anne Louise Walters, in 2012, sister and brother-in-law, Jane and Kenneth Schoner, and his sister-in-law and her husband, Marjorie and Robert Straka. The family would like to express their sincere gratitude and appreciation to all the staff at Grand Living at Indian Creek and with St. Croix Hospice for the love, care, and support they gave to Jack during his stay and final days. Cheryl Ann Lowe, 61 of Marion, died Wednesday, January 17th at her home following a short illness. Memorial services will be held at a later date. Tehan Funeral Home and Cremation is serving the family. She was, is survived by her four nephews, Colin Austin Lucas, spells Jenny, and Connor Pint. Dear friend Laura, spells Dave Lambrecht, and her cherished cousin Terry, spells J.R. Gallup, who is more like a sister. Aunt Joyce Downing, Uncle William Bill, spells Sandy Aldrich, beloved cousins, and most importantly, her family of poodles who held a special place in her heart. Cheryl was born on September 21, 1962, in Cedar Rapids, the daughter of George Budd and Mary Aldrich Lowe. She graduated in 1981 from Linmar High School. Cheryl was coordinator for Lynn Haven for 21 years and previously worked in registration at Unity Point St. Luke's Hospital. Cheryl's dogs were most important in her life, being her constant companions and source of joy. She also enjoyed spending time with her family and friends, especially camping and going to lunch. Cheryl will be deeply missed. Leo Milton Schmidt was born January 22, 1937, at home west of Williamsburg, the son of Milton and Edna Latchk Schmidt. He graduated from Williamsburg High School, then joined the United States Army for two years. Leo was united in marriage to Eva Swanson on June 25, 1961, at St. John Lutheran Church near Homestead. The couple made their home west of Williamsburg, where Leo was a lifelong farmer. He enjoyed playing cards, bowling, doing jigsaw puzzles, and spending time with his family. Leo died Friday, Friday, January 19th at the Compass Memorial Hospital in Marengo at the age of 86 years. He is survived by his wife, Ava, four children, Lisa Schmidt, Edwards of Cedar Rapids, Anne Dorman of Williamsburg, Samuel, spouse Lisa Schmidt of Williamsburg, and Peggy Noel of San Diego, California. Nine grandchildren and four great-grandchildren. Per Leo's wishes, there will be no services at this time. Powell Funeral Home in Williamsburg is caring for Leo and his family. Edward J. Bud Novak, 91 of Belle Plaine, was called to be at home with his Lord and Savior on January 18, 2024. Edward was born on March 18, 1932 to William and Emma Vornholt Novak in Eli, Iowa. He graduated from Wilson High School, Cedar Rapids, in 1950. Following graduation, Ed joined the Navy in 1951. His first permanent duty was with the VP-45 in Panama. Two years later, he was sent to Lakehurst, New Jersey. While in Lakehurst, he met a young gal that a few months later became his wife. He was married to Joan Britton on October 16, 1955, in Waretown, New Jersey. One month later, he was honorably discharged from the Navy as a second-class petty officer. Ed and Joan began their life together in Eli where he farmed and worked at Wilson's Meat Processing Plant. The expansion of Highway 30 through their farmland sent them in search of new land, which they purchased in Elberon, Iowa, in 1973. Ed continued to farm full-time until 1981, when he and Joan moved to Belle Plaine. <coughs> Excuse me. 
and continued to farm full-time until 1981 when he and Joan moved to Belle Plaine. He continued to farm part-time for many years. For 27 years during the winter months, Ed and Joan lived in Bibleville in Alamo, Texas, moving there permanently the last few years before returning to Belle Plaine in 2017. While in Texas, Ed's passion was working in his church and local missionaries, spreading the gospel of Christ. When Ed and Joan were in Iowa, they belonged to the New Life Evangelical Free Church in Tama. Ed was the man who couldn't sit still. He spent endless hours helping his sons with home projects and his home communities whenever an extra hand was needed. Ed survived by his wife Joan, four sons, Edward Brian Novak and Keith Novak of Belle Plaine, Ted, spouse Tracy Novak of Elberon, and Patrick John, spouse Nicole Novak of Ellettsville, Indiana. Grandchildren Casey, Luke, Ben, Lucas, Emily, and ten great-grandchildren. Ed was preceded in death by his parents, brother William Novak and grandson Nick Novak. Funeral service is 11 a.m. Thursday, January 25th at Herbach and Newhouse Funeral Service. Burial will take place at Oak Hill Cemetery in Belle Plaine. Visitation is from 10 to 11 a.m. Thursday at the funeral home. Memorials may be directed to the family. Richard S. Nelson, 91, of Cedar Rapids, passed away Thursday, January 18th. A visitation will be held from 5 to 8 p.m. at the Cedar Memorial Park Funeral Home on Friday, January 26th. A funeral service will be held at 11 a.m. on Saturday, January 27th at King of Kings Lutheran Church, located at 3275 North Center Point Road. Burial will be at Cedar Memorial Park Cemetery with military honors. He was born on October 23, 1932, son of Reuben and June Hines Nelson in Clayton County and later moved to Cedar Rapids in 1947. He graduated from Franklin High School in June of 1951. On March 4, 1952, Richard enlisted in the U.S. Navy and served on the USS Toledo during the Korean War until February 27, 1956. Richard married his wife Shirley Ann Johanning Meyer on September 1, 1956 at Elk Pork Lutheran Church. Richard was a welder at Universal Engineering and was crowned King of the Allied Industrial League in 1958. November 1, 1961, he joined the Cedar Rapids Police Department and retired July 25, 1986. He was a lifetime member of the VFW Post 788, American Legion Post 298. He was a member of the Cedar Rapids Police Association, Iowa State Police Association, the Associates of the Police, and King of Kings Lutheran Church. He attended the Eastern Iowa Honor Flight on October 3, 2017. Survivors include his loving wife of 67 years, Shirley, sons Richard and Kevin, grandchildren Adam, Heather, Aaron, and Brandon, great-grandchildren Emerson, Sophia, Madison, Gracie, Maverick, Mia, Miley, and Macy. The, great, the family would like to thank everyone for the support and care given to him. Michael Joseph Swift, 63, of Cedar Rapids, died Friday, January 19th. A memorial service will be held at 11 a.m. on Saturday, March 23rd at Murdoch Linwood Funeral Home and Cremation Service in Cedar Rapids. Burial will follow at Spencer's Grove Cemetery in Walker. Mike was born May 5, 1960, in Manchester, Iowa, the son of John Q. and Mary Louise Lucy Swift. He graduated from West Delaware High School, class of 1979, and went on to obtain his associate's degree from Kirkwood Community College. Mike loved music and attending live concerts. He was an avid fan of the Iowa Hawkeyes football and wrestling teams and attended 42 straight seasons of Hawkeye football. 
Mike was a Minnesota Vikings fan since 1968. Some say he bled purple and gold. In honor of Mike, guests can wear black and gold or purple, but no green will be allowed. Survivors include his life partner, Mary Hoffman, dog Chester Man Swift, siblings Patrick of Cedar Rapids, Mary Ellen Bradkowitz of West Des Moines, Jim Swift of Edina, Minnesota, Daniel Swift of Manchester, Bill Swift of Del Rapids, South Dakota, Kathleen Swift of Huntington Beach, California, Mark Swift of Marengo, Joseph Swift of Des Perez, Missouri, Maureen Young of Seattle, Washington, and lifelong friend Dave Coring of Shellsburg, and many nieces and nephews. Memorials may be directed to United Cerebral Palsy. William Frank Bill Dostel, age 82 of Iowa City, passed away Friday, January 19th, while under hospice care at Stirlingshire, following complications related to having contracted the influenza virus. In lieu of flowers, Bill has specified considering the following organizations for donation in his honor. Regina High School, the Foundation for the American Physical Therapy Association, St. Wenceslas Parish of Iowa City, and Knights of Columbus, St. Wenceslas Parish Council, number 14385. Funeral Mass will be held at 10.30 a.m. Friday, January 26th, at St. Wenceslas Catholic Church in Iowa City, with burial to follow at St. Joseph's Cemetery in Iowa City. There will be a time of visitation at the church from 9 a.m. till services with a Knights of Columbus Rosary recited beginning at 10 a.m. For complete obituary or share a thought, memory, or condolence, please visit Gay and Seahaw Funeral and Cremation Service website. Donald Don Kirby Herberger, 88 of Marion, died on Friday, January 19th at the Villages of Marion. Per Don's wishes, there will be no visitation or service. Arrangements are with Stuart Baxter Funeral and Memorial Services in Cedar Rapids. Don was born April 17, 1935. He had a career as a structural steel engineer. He survived by his wife Karen and preceded in death by his parents, a brother, and a sister. Kathleen Callan, 84, of Manchester, passed away on Thursday, January 18th at the Regional Medical Center in Manchester. She was born on January 25, 1939, in Independence, the daughter of Joseph and Martha Haxemeyer Zeiser. Kathleen was raised and educated in the Ryan area and was a 1957 graduate of St. Patrick's High School. On July 6, 1960, Kathleen was united in marriage to Jerome Callum at St. Patrick's Catholic Church in Ryan. Eight children were blessed to this union. Together they made their home in Manchester. Kathleen was a stay-at-home mom while raising their children. She then worked at Exide Battery from 1979 until her retirement in 2004. She was a longtime active member of St. Mary Catholic Church and faithfully attended Mass and prayed the Rosary daily. Left to cherish her memory are her seven children, David Callan of Spring Valley, Illinois, Joseph Callan of Ottawa, Illinois, Thomas Callan, and Mary Waterhouse, all of Manchester, Patricia Glass of Manchester, Randall Callan of Central City, and Robert Callan of Manchester. Son-in-law Mark Fisher, 14 grandchildren, four great-grandchildren, and siblings Francis Zeiser, Kenneth Zeiser, sister Dolores Zeiser, Rosalind Zeiser, Martin Zeiser, William Zeiser, Janice Hildebrand, and Patricia Cook. Sisters-in-law Marilyn Zeiser and Mary Jane Zeiser, and many nieces and nephews. Memorials may be directed to St. Mary's Catholic Church, and online condolences may be sent to Leonard Muller 
funeralhome.com. Mass of Christian Burial is at 11 a.m. on Tuesday, January 23rd at St. Mary Catholic Church in Manchester. Visitation is from 2 to 7 p.m. on Monday, January 22nd at the Leonard Muller Funeral Home in Manchester. Friends may also call from 9.30 to 10.30 at the church on Tuesday. Interment will be at St. Mary's Catholic Cemetery in Manchester. Elfried Markman Hansen of Cedar Rapids died January 18th. And I'm sorry, she was born November 29th, 1936 in Anamosa, the daughter of Marie and Henry Markman. She grew up on a farm near Hale with her brother Carl and sisters Helen and Mary. After graduating from Olin High School, she moved to the big city of Cedar Rapids, where she worked at Woolworths and then at Collins. She married P. Hansen on May 27, 1960, in Wyoming, Iowa, and then remained married until Pete's death in 2018. They were lifelong members of St. Stephen's Lutheran Church. Funeral services will take place at Cedar Memorial Park Funeral Home on Saturday, January 27th at 11 a.m. There will be a visitation prior from 9 to 11 a.m. Inurement will take place at a later date. That brings us to the end of today's reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette. I'm your reader, Teresa Whitaker. Thanks for sharing your time with IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. 